Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun, the podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Britain is well into the process of negotiating its exit from the European Union, but the referendum that triggered the process was won by a very narrow margin, and many would still like to see the decision reversed. It's a possibility that has been pretty much excluded by politicians of all political hues, so there is little outlet for the disaffected. But in this episode, we're going to give those views an airing, partly because the overwhelming majority of those who wrote to us were keen for us to focus on the legitimacy of the Brexit process and the impact on our democracy of the bill currently going through Parliament. I'm delighted to be joined by James Blitz, our Whitehall editor, Muir Dickey, our Scotland correspondent, and Professor Shona Douglas-Scott of Queen Mary University School of Law in London. Now, we'd like to start with a sample of questions from some of our listeners and then move on to discuss the concerns they've raised. Peter Stevenson from the UK asks, why didn't constitutional lawyers question the legality of the referendum as it was flawed in so many respects? How can an advisory referendum provide a mandate for legislation? And he goes on to say Brexit may be Brexit, but what is Brexit? Next, we have Nick van Prague, who describes himself as a European Brit living in Austria, asking, why does the debate remain slavishly observant to the referendum vote? Why is more not being done to question the constitutionality of acting on the result? Marching over a cliff just to respect an increasingly distant referendum result seems crazy. John Howitt in Brussels asks how it's possible that a minority vote, 37% of the electorate, can be forced on the majority. He says if you take account of the estimated 4 million citizens living outside the UK who were excluded from voting, support for Brexit falls even further. And he asks, is this democratic in the sense of real democracy? Michael Liu from Germany says a responsible government would have responded to the referendum result by examining the consequence of proceeding or not before triggering Article 50. Failure to act responsibly has destroyed faith in the UK democratic system. And finally, Colin Clark of the UK asks, given that the referendum was advisory, a point confirmed by the High Court, why was there no considered government response to that advice? Now, James and Shona, perhaps I can ask you what your responses are to these points. Well, that's a lot of rather different questions there. And I think I'm going to start by picking up on just one I heard the word flawed being mentioned. Now, the fact that it's an advisory referendum doesn't necessarily mean it's flawed, but it does have consequences. So in Britain, we don't have a codified constitution. Referendums are not a typical part of our constitution. We've had very, very few all UK referendums, but they are lawful. And this particular referendum, the EU referendum, went through both houses of parliament as legislation. So it's a valid bill. There are all sorts of questions about who could vote in the referendum. There were debates about that. Could 16 and 17-year-olds vote? 
could EU nationals vote? But in the end, Parliament voted that through. So it was a valid bill. The next question, though, is what do you do with that, given that it was advisory? Because in our constitutional law, referendums are usually advisory, with certain exceptions I won't go into now. And what the government of the time said was that they would act on the result of the referendum. This was a point specifically made by the government back in early 2016. And so I think the thought was that if they didn't act on it, this would be seen as a loss of faith from the electorate and that no electorate would trust a government ever again. Now, you can dispute that. It's a political point. It's not a legal point. There is no legal reason why that referendum result should have been acted on. But politically, obviously, there were reasons why the government thought they should act on it. That's a very comprehensive answer. The points I would make are these. As you rightly say, this was a referendum that was passed through Parliament. And many of these questions which have been raised, admittedly, we should say, by what is clearly a very Remainer audience here, and we need to acknowledge that there are many people who don't agree with that, a lot of these questions are political questions. The argument that the referendum was flawed is very much an argument about the presentation of the arguments on either side, especially on the Leave side to the public. And there is no question, of course, around the issue of the £350 million a week that could go to the NHS. That is something that has been very severely and rightly contested. And so many people argue that the referendum was flawed. That is now in the political debate we are having post-referendum. But there's not much one can do to take that argument and say the referendum was legally flawed in some way. There is an important question, I think, about whether there should have been a supermajority for the four nations of the United Kingdom. In other words, that there should not only have been 50% across the country, but that you should have also demanded 50% in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. That's very important in the Scottish case. And because you don't have that 50% plus vote to leave in Scotland, of course, a majority of Scots voted to remain you have created certainly a sense of political disaffection north of the border. And so that is an issue which, again, I think in retrospect, the government might have considered, but didn't consider at the time. As I say, these are political questions. It doesn't seem to me, as Shona has said, that there is some kind of legal basis to reverse what has been done. Could I just add something, though, which is that it does make Britain very unusual because we're doing by referendum something that would be very, very hard to do in almost all other countries. Most countries make it really, really hard to bring about major constitutional change. Britain leaving the EU is probably the biggest constitutional change of a generation, if not longer, generations. Most constitutions would have entrenched provisions, requirements for supermajorities to make that really, really hard. We don't because we don't have a codified constitution. So you can make legal comparisons and point out this is very unusual, but it wasn't legally improper. Muir, I'd like to bring you in here. The argument which was put forward before the referendum by the Scottish National Party that there should be a requirement for a supermajority or unanimity among the nations of the UK before there could be a referendum result for Brexit. Obviously, that doesn't cut any ice with most Scots who support staying in the UK because Scotland voted in 2014 to remain a part of the UK and the UK decided as a whole to leave. So that's an argument that isn't universally accepted across Scotland. 
There's also, I think, reasons to be doubtful about having other forms of particular condition or impediment to vote for constitutional change, such as a supermajority. And an example of that would be 1979, where there was a vote for a devolved assembly in Scotland, which had requirements for a certain percentage of the electorate to vote in favour, as well as for a simple majority of those who voted. And although a majority did vote for an assembly, it didn't clear the requirement for a proportion of the electorate. Famously, people who had died before the vote were counted as no's. An assembly didn't happen. And I think that contributed to a lot of disillusionment with the political process in Scotland. There was a real sense that that was unfair among large sections of the population. So there is a risk to making the hurdles too high for change. We're going to come back to the Scotland question a little later on, but adding to the question about the process itself and whether or not it was legitimate, there are real concerns about the threat to our democracy posed by the legislation currently going through Parliament. Shona, perhaps you can explain some of these concerns. Yeah, certainly. Well, right now, the EU Withdrawal Bill, which was previously known as the Great Repeal Bill, for whatever reasons, a more grandiose title is going through Parliament. It's had its second reading. It's soon to be heard in committee stage on the floor of the House of Commons. And there are, I think, all sorts of problems with this bill. It might be quicker to talk about what isn't problematic about it. But just to highlight a couple of the problems, I think one that came up a lot in the debate on the second reading is the fear that this bill will transfer a huge amount of power from Parliament to the government, to the executive. And there's something rather ironic about that if Brexit is all about taking back control for the UK and taking back control for Westminster. How will it do that? Well, it will do that because it will conserve a huge amount of EU law as national law. It will have to do that because otherwise there would be huge gaps in our law. We've been a member of the EU for about 45 years and much of our law is EU law. We can't just get rid of it overnight. We have to keep it. But this bill makes provisions for government ministers to make all sorts of changes, basically rather uncontrolled by Parliament. And that, I think, is the major problem of this bill. And this is why people are seeing it as bringing about a huge transfer of power from the parliament to the executive. We've got to remember that many of these EU laws concern really, really important matters like human rights, rights of people at work, environmental provisions. And suddenly, if this bill is passed, a minister might have the power to repeal them entirely, workers' rights protections, for example. And that is very concerning. That's probably the major concern that people currently have, but there are many others. Well, that is clearly, uh, once again, a very comprehensive explanation and an important one of the difficulties. There are some reasons to play devil's advocate for a second why the government needs to take what are these Henry VIII powers or these emergency powers, and that is that you've got a very complicated process happening whereby a negotiation is happening with the European Union, which changes the trading relationship of the UK with the EU, That negotiation effectively comes to an end in October of 2018, and it is implemented in March 2019. We have a new relationship. And in that period, the government does very quickly need, this is the argument that they make, to implement some of the decisions that arise from that negotiation, and it therefore needs to do so at speed and without much time for a debate on the floor of the House of Commons. Now, 
I'm just putting to you the argument that they make. I don't think it's a very good argument, but I wonder what your response is to it. Yeah, I have two points of response, I think. The first is that I quite accept that it's necessary to have this legislation. It's necessary to have it in place by Brexit Day. Otherwise, we will have legal chaos and huge gaps in the law. What isn't necessary is to have this huge transfer of powers to government ministers without parliamentary scrutiny. And what the bill could have done, but hasn't done, although was recommended by the House of Lords Constitutional Committee when it scrutinised the whole issue earlier this year, was to have put in place special safeguards that would have ensured that in certain situations, Parliament could adequately scrutinise the measures. It hasn't done that. The so-called negative procedure, where Parliament only gets involved if it finds a particular problem with a piece of secondary legislation, will apply in most cases. So that is one problem. The actual system of parliamentary scrutiny that the bill provides for is rather thin. And in fact, Parliament hasn't said no to ministerial regulations since 1979, as far as I understand. The second point, though, is that you mentioned that time is of the essence. It is of the essence. But maybe the government should not have triggered Article 50 until it was sure that it was in control of the situation and would be able to get through Parliament adequate legislation. As it is, it's put particularly its civil servants in a very difficult situation of having to be able to deliver probably the most difficult legal task of a century without giving them adequate time. And as a result, a lot will have to be done by this very swift process of ministers adopting regulations. I very much agree with that argument, especially the latter argument. I mean, I think there are enormous questions to be asked about why Mrs May went ahead with the triggering of Article 50 so quickly and what civil service advice and discussion there was on that, because it would, in retrospect, especially given the fact that we are now having to commit ourselves to a transitional period, it would have been far better to allow the civil service a good year to work out its approach to all these issues in good time and then move to it. Of course, there was political pressure on her to do something immediately. But even so, I think there are different ways she could have played this. She could have said, for example, right at the start, I'm not going to trigger Article 50 now, but I will table legislation in the House of Commons to trigger Article 50 rather than simply saying Parliament has no role spin that out for a while, which I think could easily have been done, take the Article 50 bill through the Commons over a period of six months, and that would have given the civil service and the institutions time to prepare all this stuff. And I, I think that was a mistake. A question I want to ask is this. There's clearly an enormous amount of rebellion on this on the Tory backbenchers from people like Dominic Grieve and so on. Is this issue sufficiently toxic that it might actually destabilise the government completely? Or is this the kind of issue where the government's going to have to give way, but the Brexit process will continue? I mean, what level of toxicity do you give it? Well, in a sense, that's more of a political assessment. But I think there are two ways of looking at this. One would be to say that this bill can continue there's a lot wrong with it. I haven't even talked about certain things like the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which are specifically omitted, and Conservative MPs like Dominic Grieve are very concerned about. But one view would be to say that you can make amendments, you can make changes, and the bill would still survive. The other view is that this bill is just so misplaced. 
It's such a disaster, it's a monstrosity, that it shouldn't have survived the second reading and that we should not be where we are now. And I think what view you take might be a political view, but also a legal view, because there are a lot of legal experts who simply say, this is badly drafted, not to blame the civil servants at all, but given the time that they had. There are all sorts of other issues that are not particularly exciting, rule of law problems, just of legal uncertainty, which may clog up the courts for years as a result. So it would have been better to go back to the drawing board and start again. But given the time constraints, the clock is ticking. That is not possible. Thanks, Shona. In relation to this legislation going through Parliament, there's also a consequence for the devolved governments in Wales and Scotland who have accused the government in Westminster of repatriating powers back to London that have been devolved for nearly two decades. Muir, perhaps you can explain what the situation is here. There is a real question about the impact of the legislation that the UK government has proposed on the devolution settlement. As you mentioned, in 1999, If areas of policy were not explicitly reserved to Westminster, they were devolved to Scotland. And so since then, the Scottish Parliament has had a theoretical responsibility for agriculture, for fisheries, for environment, for a whole host of other areas. And although those powers have broadly been exercised by Brussels since then, they have legally been devolved. Now, the UK government is proposing to change that and to change it unilaterally And I think that is potentially a very politically sensitive thing to do. And it raises lots of constitutional questions. Shona, do you have anything to add to that? Well, just to say that I think that last point is a really interesting point because there's a bit of a tension there. On the one hand, after Brexit, the UK will need to have its own internal market. And it's quite conceivable that things that the devolved nations did would put forward obstacles to that. On the other hand, these are powers, agriculture, fisheries, environment, that have been devolved. But devolution took place within the context of EU membership. And it's a very big problem that the UK government now has. How can it reconcile the need for a UK internal market with devolution? The government has said it wants to put in place frameworks, but it hasn't made clear what those single market frameworks will be. And quite frankly, the government's record of dealing with the devolves through this body known as the JMC, the Joint Ministerial Committee, is not good. And so there is suspicion about a power grab from the devolves. And I think that there's reason for them to be suspicious. I'm going to bring us slightly forward here now, or or perhaps backwards, to consider a question that is hardly ever raised by politicians, but which many of our listeners have asked. And that is, is there any way to reverse Brexit? I'm just going to read a few comments from our listeners. Chloe Vaughan from here in the UK asks, the referendum was based on so-called facts about NHS savings and immigration cuts that were lies. Surely now the truth is known, the referendum should be held again. Constance Wong in Oxford asks, do you still believe there is any chance of Brexit not happening? Most of the models that have been talked about suggest Britain losing its right to influence decisions, yet having to accept them anyway. Is there any point to doing this? And another UK-based listener asks, why should a misjudged and mistimed referendum be allowed to continue to damage Britain? Surely the error is sufficiently clear to justify a second referendum. Who has the courage to stop this march of folly? 
with apologies to the author, Barbara Tuckman. Would you like to just comment on this idea? Can we go back? Is it possible to revisit the referendum vote? Okay, well, there are two ways of looking at that, politically and legally. And I'll just talk about legally. Legally, from the UK perspective, if there was a political will, then yes, all sorts of things could be done. The process could be discontinued or a second referendum could be held on all sorts of matters, whether to leave or whether to leave under certain conditions. But we have started the process and there are two in this tango process. And so there is a question of whether Article 50 can be stopped once triggered And the interesting thing about that is that all of the legal experts disagree, but ultimately it would be for the European Court of Justice to give its opinion. And the European Court of Justice seems to be rather toxic in some quarters. But legally, I think if there were a political will, there could be a legal way, providing there could be some sort of accommodation with the EU. And it might be that Britain would lose some of the benefits that it's accrued through EU membership rebates or opt-outs and things like that. But whether politically it's possible is another matter. Following on from that, can I also ask what would happen if there was a political stalemate? We did not progress. We come to the end of the time allotted. There is no agreement. Would we be able to stay or would we be forced legally? Would we be bound to leave? Well, this comes back to what I was previously saying, because The British government has to take a view on that. It has to take a view and put a view to Brussels. So without its doing that, I think the default is what Article 50 says, which is that after two years, Britain will be out. And we will be out without an agreement on WTO terms, which are not very good. So if the British government took a view then there are all sorts of things that might follow from that. They might try and get an extension of time. They might try and get a transition period. Or they might try to put something to Parliament. No deal, for example. They might say, OK, we bring no deal for Parliament to discuss. As far as I understand right now, that's not even an option, which is a slightly scary thing, that the British government wouldn't even necessarily bring the prospect of no deal to Parliament to discuss. Politically, James... Politically, what would be needed? Given that referenda happen so rarely in the UK and given the totemic significance of this one, I find it impossible to believe this referenda could politically be reversed in any other way than a vote of the British people. If there were to be this vote of the British people, Parliament would have to order one to happen. That does not look remotely conceivable at the moment, given the state of the main parties in the UK. The reason why the main parties are pressing ahead by and large with Brexit and not seeking to reverse the referendum is that they're looking at public opinion. And by and large, if you look at opinion polls, public opinion has not shifted very much from the 52-48 decision that was taken on the 23rd of June. There was a recent opinion poll that showed that things have gone differently, that actually now 52% are in fact in favour of staying and 48 are in favour of leaving. And there are also people who make an interesting argument that if you look at the demographics in this country and the fact that the young are overwhelmingly in favour of staying and the old are in favour of leaving and the old are also dying off, it isn't going to be very long before there is a very clear majority of people in Britain who want to stay in the EU. And it, it won't be more than four or five years away, a permanent majority. But politically, I don't see it. 
I think only two things could bring it about. One would be a very serious economic event in the UK, a serious indication to the British public that actually this decision is taking us towards quite a deep recession, which it may well do. The trouble is that the economic consequences of Brexit are very gradual. People associate the rise in the cost of living with the economic impacts of the 2008 crash, and it's all very slow moving. So at the moment, I don't see anything between now and March 2019 that will do that. The second is, I suppose, if we plunge into total and utter political chaos. It's not impossible. I mean, we do have a Conservative Party that is more split than any other party since Labour in the 1970s. We're in a very, very fluid political situation in the UK, but it would require something really quite significant to change the optics on that. And we have to remember that Labour is not for staying in the EU. The position of Corbyn, as much as anything else, defines the direction of British politics and the country as a whole. If he were in favour of remaining, then I think things would be very different. But that isn't the case. And as a result, I put only a very, very small percentage on the possibility of us reversing this decision. Muir, any final thoughts? If I could just add one point to that, I think an interesting aspect to it is from Scotland. Clearly, the Scottish National Party, the governing party in Scotland, is one of the stronger forces against Brexit, both through its MPs in Westminster and through its control of the Scottish government. But I think there would be some hesitancy to be too strongly pursuing a second referendum until there was very clear justification for it, because, of course, a referendum remains the SNP's favoured route towards Scottish independence. And the precedent of a second referendum could well make Scottish independence more difficult at some point in the future. Well, thank you very much, Shona, Muir and James. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for another unvarnished look at what Brexit means for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We hope you'll join us then. And we'd be delighted in the meantime if you wanted to review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. You can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 